We're coming to the end of 1 Timothy, from which we are gleaning principles on how to keep the faith alive and how to pass it on to the next generation. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 11 through 16 of chapter 6, which, in which for the third time um, in this letter, Paul has indicted the false teachers. And in each case, Paul follows the indictment of these false teachers with a corresponding charge to Timothy. In other words, he says, this is what these people are doing wrong. And Timothy, this is, in fact, what you should do. In each case, we saw last week, Paul also makes reference to the early days, the beginnings of uh, Timothy's faith, his spiritual beginnings. We saw last week. Paul points to a time when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I believe that Paul here is referring to Timothy's baptism. It is in baptism that one makes a confession and does so in the presence of witnesses. It is in baptism that one identifies with Jesus Christ. The principle that we saw last week in the passage was that being a Christian is a lifelong struggle. We find Paul giving four imperatives at the beginning. Flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. The third is fight the good fight of the faith. The fourth was take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then we have this solemn charge. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. So the principle, once again, is being a Christian is a lifelong struggle. This means that the imperatives we find in this passage will not cease to be true at any point in our lives. There will be no point in our Christian lives in which we will say, well, I don't need to flee from these things, or I don't need to pursue godliness or faith or love or any of these things. Um, I'm sort of beyond that. This is something that we are always to do. We're always to fight the good fight of faith. We're always to take hold of eternal life to which we were called. This involves struggle. But the struggles that we face may change as we grow older. The next generation needs to understand this. We need to understand this. Each each stage of life has its issues, its struggles. You might say its pluses and its minuses. In youth and adult, young adulthood, there is strength, there is vitality and energy, but perhaps lacking in experience and means, financial means perhaps, or even wisdom. And so the struggles may deal with wisdom and supply. I wish I had more. But as one gets older, the means may be there, but the physical vitality may begin to decrease. And so the struggles are no longer about, I need more financial resources. The struggles may deal with our health and our weakness. What I'm trying to argue is that in every stage of our lives, as a child of God, we will face struggles. And we should not be surprised by this, either in ourselves or in others. And the next generation needs to be told about this so that they will not be surprised. I was reminded as I was thinking through this um, some years ago the father of a friend of mine and this this man the father was a very godly man had had major surgery and the surgery went well but then there were complications afterwards and the father became quite fearful and one of his children asked him pop don't you trust God in my opinion a, a really cruel question 
and a failure to recognize that struggle is part of the Christian life. It may, in fact, be that this father was as surprised by his fearfulness as his children were. But at different points in our lives, there are different battles to fight, different things that we struggle with. Just because he had trusted God earlier in his life does not mean that trust is automatic as he gets older, as he faced a major health issue in his life. See, a part of the struggle is that we do not know what God is doing in our lives or what he will do. Beyond the fact that God is holy and God loves us, in many ways we are walking in the dark. It's reminded of a passage in the Ecclesiastes 11. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening your hands will not be idle. For you will do not know what, which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. The teacher in this passage is insisting on the fact that certain aspects of what God is doing just defy explanation. We just do not know what God is doing. But that's fine. Mystery is, in fact, a part of life. Uh, just as we do not know how a child is formed in the womb, so we do not understand many things that God is doing in our lives. But we do know that God is the maker of all things. I think the teacher doesn't want us to be overly optimistic or blindly optimistic that it's all going to work out in the end. The life of faith does not remove the problem of our ignorance. We just don't know where things are headed necessarily in our lives. As we face God's providence and the mystery of it, our faith is to flourish. It is not to get rid of mystery. I know in my own life, but I've had many people say to me, I just wish I knew what God was doing. Just wish I knew what he was trying to teach me or, or get me to go. I just wish I knew. And the reality is that oftentimes it remains a mystery. The teacher doesn't want us to get too alarmed, but neither does he want us to imagine that things will all work out in the end because we're good people. God is a God of love and he loves us, but it doesn't mean that we will understand what he is doing. So, if the Christian life is a lifelong struggle, what is the struggle? As I've said, I think in different stages of our lives it may be different, but I think it all boils down to one thing. I think it has to do with contentment. If you will, in chapter 6, look at verses seven, uh, 6, 7, 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I think that at every stage of life, we might complain, I don't have enough, and then you fill in the blank. Early on, I don't have enough money, enough financial resources. Later in life, I don't have enough strength or health or memory that works. Um, it has been said that youth is wasted on the young. The sense being that the young don't have the wisdom to know what to do, but the elderly do. But the elderly don't have the vitality to do what those who are young can do. And one might be tempted to say, what a waste. What a waste. It's some kind of cosmic joke. The reality is, as God's people, we are to learn contentment. 
that as younger people, perhaps lacking experience and wisdom and perhaps financial resources to be content, and then as we get older, and then we have the financial resources and the experience and the wisdom, but then the, the body begins to break down to learn contentment there at well, as well. We saw this in our study of Philippians. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. In the face of it, it sounds like a very straightforward statement. But if we're not careful, it sounds a bit fatalistic or something that sounds like this, something the Stoics would say. But as we've seen, the Stoics believed in contentment, self-sufficiency. It came from within. That within themselves, they had managed to control themselves. But for Paul, he learned contentment. It came from without. It came from the person of Jesus Christ. It came from being a man in Christ on whom he was totally dependent. It's interesting in Philippians 4, Paul writes this twice. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content. Paul then says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty or in want. See, contentment doesn't come from within. It comes from outside of us. And not just from any source. It comes from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hear this in Paul, that he is a man in Christ. And as such, he takes whatever Jesus brings into his life. If it means plenty, he is a man in Christ. If it means want or need, he is still a man in Christ. As we are engaged in struggles at every stage of our lives, we are to learn contentment at every stage of our lives. In every circumstance that God puts us in. Remember what Paul wrote, I have learned to be content. I have learned the secret of being content. Today we come to the last passage in 1 Timothy, the last principle. And just as a reminder, I mentioned the book ends as abruptly as, as it began. Um, Paul says very little in the way of uh, farewell. Uh, in fact, it's grace be with you. That's it. Um, that is his farewell. Here before Paul throws in a few words and very few words uh, to Timothy, reminding him of what he said, Paul returns to the issue of wealth. Look, listen, follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning at verse number 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Earlier in this chapter, Paul has dealt with the issue of wealth, of money and riches. If you look at verse five, the end of the verse, those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And in verses nine and ten, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. 
By the way, this verse number 10 is perhaps one of the best known verses of Paul's writings and is usually misquoted as the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, and Or I've heard people say that money is the root of all evil. Um, it is, in fact, a root of all kinds of evil. Earlier in the letter, he also talked about money in chapter 3 when he was talking about the qualifications of leaders in the church. Uh, the elders, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. An elder cannot be a lover of money. And then deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. So Paul has addressed the issue of wealth in the context of church leadership, in the context of the false teachers, in the context of those who want to get rich. Here we find something quite different. Paul addresses those who are already rich. Now remember that this letter is part of a conversation. But we only have Paul's side of the conversation. We might well ask, why does Paul include these verses in his letter? And because we only have his part of the conversation, we would only be speculating, but I think within reason. First of all, I think Paul wants to correct any misunderstandings with regard to wealth or riches that based on what he wrote earlier, remember he did not write that money is the root of all evil. Um, but there may be some who imagined or heard him saying that and that's not in fact what he said. So I think Paul is trying to just correct any, any misconceptions that people may have gotten from what he's written. But secondly, it's important to remember that the early church did not have buildings, church buildings as we do today. They met in people's homes. And generally speaking, they met in the homes of those who had homes large enough, houses large enough for the congregation. So these would be people who had money. They would be people who were wealthy. It may be that what Paul has written about money has been seen as directed to them in a very negative way. And that's not the case. And so Paul, in fact, wants to revisit the issue. But lastly, remember that this letter is corrective in nature. And Paul is seeking to present a corrective with regard to the issue of wealth. What I would begin, or what I would point out in, in talking about wealth, is that Paul does not say that there is anything wrong with being wealthy. There is nothing inherently wrong with being rich. The church has struggled with this issue through the centuries. In part, I think, due to what we find in the Gospels. And interestingly enough, people only sort of begin in the Gospels when it comes to the issue of affluence. And uh, that's a mistake. The story of the rich ruler found in Luke 18, who asked what he must do in order to inherit eternal life, Jesus answered, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Many have taken this as an eternal principle that applies to all of God's people at all time in all places, that we are all to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor. This is simply not what is being said. Jesus is dealing with one issue that prevents this man from giving his life to the kingdom, and that's his money. I think for everyone it is different. 
In fact, we have another person in the Gospel of Luke. It is his family that prevents him from coming to the kingdom. He says, let me bury my father. Well, his father's not dead yet, but he wants to bury his dad. He's going to stay at home till dad dies, and then he will follow Jesus in the kingdom. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. With every person, it is different. And for this man, this rich ruler, it was his money that prevented him from entering the kingdom. After the rich ruler left, he was very sad because he was a man of great wealth, we are told. Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus wants his disciples to know that wealth does not give a person special entrance into the kingdom. Not at all. I think in the ancient world... Are we that much different today? People assume that those who are wealthy have done something of value. Um, They have some type of sacredness, some spiritual quality that has allowed them to be endued with blessings from on high. And therefore, that's why they're rich. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what it's about. By the way, I think Jesus would also say it is as easy Or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a poor man to enter the kingdom of God. It is only by the grace of God that anyone enters the kingdom of God. Now, we need to think of the situation or the society in which Paul is writing this letter. The reality is that most people in the ancient world who were rich were born into wealth. Um, As they were born into the social class, they did not become wealthy through any effort of their own. In fact, they were born into wealth. Because this, you remember Paul said earlier, those who want to get rich. Well, he's talking to people who are already rich, who were probably born into that wealth. By the way, we did a series, I think 10 years ago, on um, wealth and poverty, and I don't want to retrace or repeat what I said there. Um, I I would remind you, though, those of you who were here, that we saw that affluence in scripture is not wrong. That when God put Adam and Eve in a garden to teach them, he put them in, in a non-monetary economy, an affluent place. It was a place of luxury. It was a place of beauty. It was a place in which they could learn. That there is nothing wrong with being rich. Where people get into trouble is what Paul addresses first. He begins negatively. And then he gives the right alternative with instructions about what they are to do and then the results in the, common age, in the coming age. So first of all, he begins out negatively. The twin perils of being wealthy are arrogance and self-sufficiency. The word arrogant is actually in Greek composed of two words. The King James is the closest to this, high-minded. Two words put together. It is to think or to cherish exalted thoughts about oneself. Zib read to us last week from Romans chapter 12, in verse number 16, Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. It's from the NIV. The King James says, Mind not high things, this is the high-mindedness, but condescend to men of low estate. In the ESV, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Pride is the deadly sin, I think, for the entire human race. But it seems to be the special curse of those who are rich, as they have what others do not, 
or they have more of what others do have. And the result may be, in fact, that they have a sense of arrogance and pride. They think, well, I have more than others, therefore I am higher than others, and arrogance as a result. And Paul begins by saying, Timothy, command these people not to be arrogant. And secondly, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. They have something in which they put their hope, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when one is rich, there is the strong temptation to put one's hope, one's uh, confidence in that wealth. By the way, lest we throw rocks at those who are wealthy, ask yourself, how many times have you said something like this? If only I had money, then this would be fixed, or everything would be fine. It seems that for many, should I say many of us, money is seen as the cure-all. If one is sick, if only I had money to pay for excellent health care. If one needs an education, if only I had money to pay for my tuition. I think at every point in our lives, somehow we think money is the answer to all things. In Proverbs, we read, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. But uh, cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. As Paul says, wealth which is so uncertain. Paul tells Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world. So their wealth belongs to this present world, which is temporary, which is passing away. Don't put your confidence in that. Don't be arrogant about this. You may remember from Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. So Paul begins negatively. Timothy, command these people not to be arrogant and not to put their trust, their confidence in their wealth. Well, something I wish that I had, I'm sure someone must have told me when I was younger, but I didn't seem to hear it. In Scripture, whenever we are told not to do something, it's very rarely left at that. We are told what we should do instead. There is the alternative. So, if we're not to be arrogant or to put our hope in wealth, what are we to do? Put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The rich should do as the widows do, as he wrote in chapter 5. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. Does this mean that the rich should sell everything and give it to the poor? Should they abandon their wealth? I would say no. It is Paul who reminds Timothy and us, hopefully, God is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Unlike the false teachers, who we are told forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from foods, 
Paul says everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. The reason that everything may be enjoyed lies in the recognition that everything we have, including one's wealth, is a gift. It is an expression of God's gracious generosity. Listen again to the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. Because one's hope is in God, because God richly provides us with everything, because God richly provides everything for our enjoyment, what are we supposed to do? Well, what follows are four commands, if you wish, the positive. We've been told the negative. We've been given the alternative. Now what are we supposed to do? Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and be willing to share. The first two commands might sound rather vague. Do good. Well, what does that mean? Be rich in good deeds. Um, one might say that anyone could define this any way that they wanted. Isn't, isn't this open to interpretation? Actually, no. Paul then defines what doing good and being rich in good deeds means. Being generous and being willing to share with those who are in need. This thinking has its roots in the Old Testament. And let me read to you several passages. Deuteronomy 15. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, God has given you this land. Okay. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. In Leviticus 25, if any one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. In Psalm 112, good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. And we read in the prophets time and time again as they preach against those who did not help the poor. Just a side note, maybe a future conversation. I find it interesting that lending money is seen as an act of generosity, not simply giving of money. Oftentimes I think we think that lending is, is, is less generous than giving, but in fact the passages in the law particularly stress the issue of lending. Perhaps you're not simply helping someone or you're not helping them by simply giving them something. You, in fact, should lend to them. So back to the matter of gift. If what we have is gift from God, then why should we hold on to it? Should we not share with others what has been freely and graciously given to us? Someone might say, well, no. What God gave me, he gave to me. If God wanted you guys to have it, he would have given it to you. So apparently he gave it to me, so I better hold on to it. Well, Paul's not finished. If you look in verse number uh, 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 
in the language of today, it might seem that Paul is saying, hey guys, you need to pay it forward. If you give money now, then when you get to heaven, you'll, your bank account will be full. Um, I'm fairly certain there are no bank accounts in heaven. Okay. Uh, I remember being puzzled why everyone was so, so keen on the fact that the streets of heaven were paved with gold. Um, what do you think you're going to do with that gold? Are you going to buy something? Uh, Paul is not thinking in those terms. I think we're just far too commercial in our thinking. You cannot buy off God. You cannot earn your salvation. Rather, Paul is doing a contrast. In verse number 17, he talks about wealth which is uncertain. It belongs to this age only. Our time here is so short. We will not be here forever. The life to come, that is eternal. So, you need to have your perspective correct to understand that what I have here, yes, it's a gracious gift from God. I should share with others because this life is so temporary. If I die broke, that's fine because this is not the end of the story. There is yet the age to come. We are to have a correct perspective on things. To be generous and to give others when they are in need is not or should not be seen as lost to us. Rather, it is saying, I understand what is coming in the age to come. Hear the words of Jesus. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe there is the call to sell what we have. If somebody is in need, to give to those who are, who are in need. Wherever, whatever you're thinking about, that's where your heart is. And if you're thinking about the wealth you have in this age, then you're obviously not thinking about the age that is to come. You think that this is it. You only go around once in life. You better enjoy it while you can. And a person who has the right perspective says, no, this is temporary. This is gift from God. I need to learn what is right, what is valuable in preparation for the coming age. What is the treasure, by the way? Is it the streets of gold? Is it the mansion that people think we have in heaven? No, it is that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. To those who are listening closely, they may, have, may be reminded of what was said in verse number 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. God has called each one of us to that which is truly life. The life in the age to come. We should not forget this. Money tends to cause us to forget this. Possessions distract us. They become more important than they should be. We need to have a right perspective and act accordingly. And then in verses 20 and 21, the last two verses of this book, Paul reminds Timothy of what he has already told him. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you.
rather abrupt ending. For the fourth and final time, Paul gives Timothy a charge. The picture, the metaphor, I think, is, is very clear. If somebody gives you something that is precious, they entrust it to you, then you do not treat it carelessly. You guard it because it has been entrusted into your care. And Paul has given Timothy a job to do in Ephesus. He has given him the gospel and he is to go to Ephesus and to deal with the false teachers. Timothy needs to be reminded of that. He needs to guard that. He needs to protect it. And he needs to stand up for the fault, to the false teachers. He needs to resist them. But he also needs to be an example of what a good teacher is. Someone who teaches the truth. And he is to proclaim the gospel. As abruptly as this book ends, I think it ends wonderfully as it speaks of the grace of God, who has generously, graciously given us all things. Grace be with you. So here we are. We're at the end of First Timothy. And you might be wondering, okay, Damon, we've looked at these verses. What is the principle? What is the final principle in this passage? I think simply this. We are to have it for this generation and to pass it on to the next generation. We are to have a correct view of wealth. We are to have a Christian view of wealth, a biblical view of wealth. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Oftentimes you hear parents say, I want my children to have a better life than I do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And if, in fact, the parents earn more and are able to provide their children to start out with more than what they had, I don't think that that is necessarily wrong. There's nothing wrong with being rich. But at the same time, it seems like a contradiction. We are not to seek to become rich. We are to work within our callings, not for the sake of becoming wealthy. We are not to pursue wealth. We are to pursue obedience to our callings. Whatever we have, we are not to put confidence in what we possess. It seems strange to me that whether the amount is small or medium or large, people seem to be able to put their confidence in that. That when you think, when you think, oh, we're broke, we don't have any money, and then you find a $20 bill, and are like, yes. You know, we're not broke, we have $20. Um, we are not to put our confidence in what we possess. What we have comes as a gift from God, and we are to enjoy it. There is nothing wrong with enjoying life. We are not stoic. We're not ascetic. We are to enjoy what God has given us. And we are to share with those who are in need. We have been freely given so much. We are to generously share with those in need. Last and most importantly, we need to remember what is temporary and what is eternal. Possessions are temporary. The true life that God has given us, that is eternal. The church has struggled throughout the generations with the issue of money. But I think in many ways it has ceased the struggle in our generation in that it has given in 
It is given in to the commercialism. It's given in to a worldly view of wealth. And that's very sad. If we are to keep the faith alive in this generation and pass it on to the next generation, we need to have a correct, a Christian, a biblical view of wealth. That which so easily distracts us from the life of faith, we need to put it in a correct perspective. Let's pray together. Our Father, we begin by saying you have given us so much. In comparison to the majority of people on this planet, the majority of people in human history, we are wealthy. Even without insurance, we have access to health care. We have homes, schools, roads, safe roads to travel, vehicles. Even this beautiful building you've given us here. You've given us so much. And yet so often that which is given as gift takes the place of the giver. May we, as your people in this generation, keep the faith alive by having a correct perspective on wealth. And may we teach this to the next generation, to our children. To understand that what we have comes from you and it is to be enjoyed. But it is also to be shared. Because this life is so short, so temporary. We're to look ahead to eternity with you. I thank you that you've gathered us today to come to worship you. We pray for Mike Greenholt as he prepares to preach to us next Sunday. You would direct his thoughts. You would open our hearts to receive your truth. Pray for Stephen as he graduates this Friday. How grateful we are for him and your faithfulness in his life and his faithfulness to us. And we pray for the Nobly family at this time of loss that you would comfort them and give them peace. Thank you, our Father, for loving us. And as we leave this place, may your grace and your spirit go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.